dream, fun, and challenge. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho, and welcome to episode 105 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's summed up cycling in those three words. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash altitude and yes a review this week to get us underway the best five stars by luca peppo from italy the best bike podcast thank you very much for taking the time to write that very quick succinct review i really do appreciate it and a reminder to you that if you do like the show i would love a review on itunes or stitcher because five stars makes me silly all day really really silly all day silly Thank you very much. Okay, straight to the performance probe and the first article, Understanding Sleep for Optimal Recovery and Productivity. Hat tip to Rob for sending this through. The article says that sleep is the most important part of recovery when it comes to illness, depression, stress, and especially training, which is exactly what we're concerned about. In regards to heavy or intense training workloads, without quality sleep, you cannot properly recover and hit your targets in the next hard workout. So this article attempts to address the misconceptions about sleep and sleep cycles so you'll be able to get the most out of your sleep. And there are several different stages of sleep, stages 1, 2, 3, 4, and REM. And most people seem to think that a typical sleep cycle consists of only one cycle through the stages. But the stages of sleep actually cycle throughout the night depending on the duration of your sleep. So when you initially go to sleep, you soon dip into stage one and over the next hour, the body will go into a deeper sleep until it reaches stage four. And as stage four ends, you will then transition out of the deepest part of the sleep and reverse back into the lightest stages until you hit REM. And REM occurs about two hours after initially falling asleep. And some people think that REM sleep is the deepest period of sleep, but stage four is actually the deepest period of sleep. And REM is the closest to being awake the body will be in the sleep cycle so while REM is where the most of your dreaming takes place it is actually the period of sleep where you are closest to being awake so the body typically goes into stage four only two times in a full eight hour sleep cycle and after two cycles of stage one REM sleep the body will cut out stage four after three cycles the body will cut out stage three and then the body will continue to go through two cycles of stage two and REM before you wake naturally. That sounds really confusing when you read it, but there is plenty of sleep cycle charts that you can hunt out and you'll be able to see this in a better visual representation. But the point here really is that if you're not getting eight hours of sleep per night, you might not be completing the cycles of sleep and not optimizing your recovery. It's impossible to overcome sleep deprivation through any other recovery method. If something helps, the results are merely temporary and in an ideal world, eight hours of sleep would be a regular occurrence and there would be no need for sleep studies or articles because everyone would just be getting enough rest and recovery. 
But here's the most important part of the article. There are some things to take into consideration if you absolutely cannot get a full eight hours of sleep per night. Oftentimes, we set alarms to go off at the last possible moment so that we can wake up and still make it to work on time. And it makes sense to us to do this. More sleep equals better sleep, right? Well, if you think about it, you think, okay, five hours, 35 minutes must be better than five hours and five minutes, when in actuality, the quality of sleep may not be optimal for your sleep cycle and productivity if you get less than your full eight recommended hours. The least optimal period of sleep to wake up to is during stage four, where stage four is the deepest period of sleep. And if you wake up out of stage four, you are likely to be disorientated, groggy, and even have a headache. So the pattern follows from least to most optimal to wake up is stage four, three, two, one, REM stage. The deeper the period of sleep you're in when the alarm goes off, the more groggy, disorientated, and less productive you will be that day. So when you wake up out of deep periods of sleep continuously, you are subconsciously telling your body that you no longer need deep periods of sleep, and then that's a downward spiral. So how do we go about fixing this? Well, if you only had five total hours to sleep, it would be more ideal to wake up at the end of an REM cycle, which should occur at around four hours and 15 minutes. Then wake up at any point between four hours and 15 minutes and five hours, since your body will be in a deeper stage of sleep than in the final 45 minutes. Another thing to realize is that the first four hours of sleep is where most of the deep sleep happens. As the sleep cycle continues, you will spend less time in deeper periods of sleep and more time in REM sleep. So the author's suggestion here is that if you know you will not be getting a full eight hours of sleep, you should utilize the sleep stage chart and set your alarm for a time that gives you a good chance to wake up in a lighter period of sleep. Even if that means you're going to get less sleep total, hopefully you'll find that you feel more refreshed and more productive. There are products that are slowly coming onto the market and I have played with the sleep cycle iPhone app, which you place the phone on the bed and it tries to pick up what sleep cycle you're in. I've had some success, but I wouldn't say it's perfect. There is something like the Sense which is a sleep system and it's on Kickstarter right now and I've just backed it myself. I think it's going to be really cool. It's hopefully going to be able to do what it says it's going to do, which is enable you to actually set an alarm time based on the sleep cycles and the best time to wake up. So until these smart alarms are out and available, then just try experimenting with yourself. It will take some fine-tuning, and it is subjective because you will have to think how good your day was, but it's worth thinking about the next time you know that you're going to be short on sleep. Article 2, you can teach speed, sprinters falsify the deliberate practice model of expertise. These are running sprinters we're talking about, but it's interesting nonetheless. It's more of a meta look at sprinters through qualified means, but worthy of checking out. Because it follows this model of deliberate practice, which is spoken about in The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, and the deliberate practice goes along the line that talent does not exist or makes a negligible contribution to performance, and it predicts that the initial performance will be unrelated to achieving expertise and that 10 years of deliberate practice is necessary. 
So they wanted to go out and see whether this was the case amongst the top sprinters. Studies 1 and 2, they reviewed the biographies of 15 Olympic champions and the 20 fastest American men in U.S. history. In all documented cases, sprinters were exceptional prior to initiating training and most reached world-class status rapidly. The median was three years in study 1 and study 2 was 7.5 years. In study three, they surveyed U.S. National Collegiate Championships qualifiers in sprinters and throwers, and the sprinters recalled being faster as youth than did throwers, whereas throwers recalled greater strength and throwing ability. And sprinters best reformed in their first season of high school. Generally, the onset of formal training were consistently faster than 95 to 99% of their peers. And collectively, the study has concluded that these results falsify the deliberate practice model for sprinting because speed is foundational for many sports they challenge the dpm generally this may give you support for what you want to hear regarding your lackluster sprint it doesn't mean that you should spend more time on your sprint but it definitely backs up my point of doubling down on your strengths while limiting your limiters Alrighty, the nuts and bolts this week, the highs and lows of altitude training for cyclists. Sorry, I could not resist myself with that title. It's cheesy as anything, but this is a serious topic. Well, for any serious cyclist, this is a serious topic because if you've been training for some amount of time, altitude training will have popped up into your world and whether you are asked to attend one or you're curious about the results that you may have gained from one. I'm not sure if you're aware of the different options available, but it's not as simple as finding big bergs in your area and riding up them or even just staying at a ski resort in summer and riding the hills. But before we get into those, what are the effects of altitude on performance? Charles Howe of Wattage Group fame put together a chart of the effects based on the studies from Bassett et al. and Perone et al., each of their own interpretation of the reduction of performance as a percentage as you increase in elevation. So these studies show that if you live and train at around 5,000 feet, which is around 1,500 meters, you could theoretically expect an increase in FTP and performance if you went down to a sea level race. You do have to consider that in cycling, the velocity of speed achieved is usually higher at altitude compared to sea level because of the thinness of the air and therefore the frontal resistance. Returning to sea level, the air initially can feel heavy with a perceived drop in performance, a result due to the increase in air resistance. Conversely, if you come from sea level where you live and train to some place like Denver at around 5,000 feet, 1,500 meters, you might expect initially a drop of about 9% in FTP and performance. If you arrived a few weeks early, allowing your body to fully adapt to that loss of performance, you would theoretically and gradually shrink to about a 5% difference. This chart covers from 0 to 14,000 feet, so in meters that is up to 4,276 meters, where you're possibly looking at an acclimatized difference of 29%. I do have to warn you though that these are massive generalizations as the effect of altitude varies with each athlete and it's not entirely clear yet why one person may be able to handle altitude better than a similarly trained 
person. And part of the answer may lie with Robert Chapman's work where he highlighted in his talk the individual response to training at altitude where he says some people maintain blood oxygen saturation and some desaturate at altitude and if you're able to maintain your arterial hemoglobin saturation at a high level that is the key variable in how well an individual is going to maintain vo2 max at altitude what is oxygen saturation it's a term referring to the concentration of oxygen in the blood where the human body requires and regulates a very precise and specific balance in the blood normal blood oxygen levels in humans are considered 95 to 100 percent if the level is below 90 percent it is considered low resulting in hypoxema There are no real complete answers yet as to how a person acquires this ability because Chapman's conclusion is that performance and altitude is not based on fitness or training level, but this oxygenation status. This raises a huge sticking point in the research that I noticed when I started trawling through the studies that the common way to report results is through the mean of the study's subjects and this raised a red flag straight away for me regardless of the team element in cycling cycling is ultimately an individual sport so the individual response should be all that we're concerned about if it's not possible to replicate any studies findings for your own use in training or performances then what is even the point of doing altitude training i will answer this later on but first let's break down the training a bit more it's It's not all about acclimatization to competition at high altitudes. In fact, that only accounts for a very small percentage of the research. The majority is focused on altitude training for sea level competition. And I'm guessing because the majority of the events are closer to sea level. And so to this end, you may already know that there are a few different variations of altitude training. But despite the substantial differences between hypoxic methods, all of them have the same aim, which is to induce adaptions in the athlete's body in order to improve their performance at sea level. And just quickly, I will be referring to hypoxia a lot in this episode. So let's be clear on the meeting. Hypoxia is a noun that is defined as a deficiency in the amount of oxygen reaching body tissues. Hypoxic is the adjective of hypoxia. So there are three main types of altitude training. The first one, live high, train high, which is altitude camps. The second one is live high, train low, altitude sleeping. And the third one is live low, train high, altitude training. And each have their own arguments for and against. So let's start with live high, train high, altitude camps. And this is also called classic altitude training. I'd say because of its origins before, technology made it possible to manipulate saturation at lower altitudes. But this is is the type of training that has been around cycling for a long time and it's also very popular outside of cycling as well. Unfortunately, this type of altitude training fails to induce a consistent positive effect on performance. Why? Well, the first thing is that the scientific literature indicates that the individual variation in adaptive responses to altitude is very large in humans and the determinants of altitude tolerance exposure are poorly understood. Huge gaps 
in the studies right now. Secondly, at a practical level, exercising in hypoxia poses a major problem, which is the management of training intensities because maximal exercise capacity is reduced under hypoxic conditions and training at altitude at the same absolute intensity as sea level represents a larger stimulus that could eventually lead to overtraining and conversely conserving the same relative intensity at sea level has the potential to alter cycling skills and even induce detraining so in such a challenging environment it's really difficult for coaches to design the optimal training regime adapted to each athlete as a consequence the likelihood of obtaining the expected positive effect on performance for all athletes is low There is dangers with going and training up high. And as an example, if you had an FTP of around 340 watts at sea level, when you're in altitude, if it was, say, 3,000 meters, it may feel the same as a sea level effort where you're pushing around 285 watts. So you may actually detrain due to never actually training the physiological FTP level that you're used to or where you're actually at. And when you return to sea level after altitude exposure and you try to ride at 340 watts again, it's going to feel super hard because you haven't worked at 340 watts since before going to altitude. So altitude camps are really popular with institutions and countries like Australia and the US, and they both have purposely built facilities to conduct camps at. But what's interesting here is these camps are done at, say, a 1,000 metres in Threadbow in Australia rather than at 1,800 metres at Perisher so that the neuromuscular and race-specific work can be completed. So they're kind of admitting here that there is difficulty when you start getting up higher and higher to get that race-specific work in that you need. Also of interest here, how are the pros structuring their cycling to get maximum results? Say you got an athlete doing 3 by 25 minute climbs or efforts like B-Rad was doing in 2012. The rest interval for an aerobic effort like that doesn't need to be one-to-one that's basic coaching, but I'd be interested in seeing what type of rest intervals are being used here. And here's why I'm curious. The highest road in Tenerife, for example, reaches an elevation of 2,100 meters or 7,000 feet. So just for argument's sake, say that we use the Bassett et al. numbers, an unacclimatized performance would be reduced to 86.5% of your max and acclimatized would be 90.7%. So a drop in performance between 13.5% and 9.3%. So say you're trying to train zone 4, which under Coggins power training levels is 91 to 105% of FTP, which is a 14% difference. At worst, you're training at 91.5% of your FTP, and at best, you're training at 95.7% of your FTP. So while theoretically it feels like 105% of your FTP, you never actually hit your FTP. And I really want to know, is there a benefit there, even though you're not doing zone 4 efforts at or above your FTP, trying to stretch it out? Probably not in relation to performance, but maybe other adaptions are happening. Are they as important? Well, I don't think so, to put it bluntly. So you can see that either the athlete can pull it off, they're superhuman, or they're wasting their time. And there's other things to consider here as well. The recovery might not be as good, but also in the training itself, the road may go from sea level to 2,100 meters, so the effect on VO2 max will change and may be less. And 
because this did raise a whole bunch of questions for me, I wanted to look into Sky's training camps at Tenerife because they are known to do training camps at Tenerife. And I was curious to see how they handle this. And I quickly found out that they don't strictly live high, train low when they're there. Sky actually train low at around sea level for the majority of the time with some training high and definitely they are living high for the rest of the time that they're at the training camp. So Sky and others have moved away from the traditional style of altitude camp because of the various problems encountered that I've already spoken about. So new alternative methods are now being investigated. Well, when I say now, it has been the last 10, 15 years that they've started getting momentum. But these can be divided into two different strategies. The first one, providing hypoxia at rest with the primary goal of being to stimulate altitude acclimatization. And number two, providing hypoxia during exercise with the primary goal of being to enhance the training stimulus. So each approach may have different possible application strategies with the essential variable among them being the dose of hypoxia necessary to achieve the desired effect. So the first of these methods is live high, train low, and consists of sleeping at altitude to gain the hematologic adaptions, but training near sea level to maximize performance by preserving the sea level training intensity. How do you do this? You either do this with a tent that you can buy for three and a half thousand dollars or in chambers or pressurized rooms that can include beds and even kitchens and living areas as the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra has. Speaking of the AIS, they've put a lot of time and research into Live High, Train Low and have conducted many studies with a variety of sports including that fast-paced walking. They report the mean response across their studies of the following protocol which is 21 days at 3,000 meters for 14 hours a day. And before I reveal the numbers, let me say that again. That is 14 hours per day. Apparently, there are other studies that have brought this down to 10 hours per day, but that is 14 hours per day in a tent or a room that's pressurized. The mean responses are increases of 3 to 6% in hemoglobin mass, a 2 to 5% in VO2 max and a 2 to 5% in performance. And this is a big disruption to the athletes for a protocol that even they admit won't necessarily work for every athlete and they don't use it for every athlete, but they certainly use live high, train low as a training protocol leading up to big events for the walkers. But something of note here is the distinct lack of places to live at high altitude in Australia, let alone be able to train for specific sports like cycling. And this is one reason why Australia has put so much time and effort into researching live high, train low. Other reasons include there's no need to travel and it is less expensive. But the environment plays a huge role in where and how a sporting body institution or team conducts altitude training. And there have been cases of teams using the US high altitude facility to live in, but train with extra oxygen to reduce the theoretical altitude for their training. And it's anecdotal but worthwhile noting while we are talking about national institutions that national team physiologists don't doubt whatsoever that live high, train low boosts the hemoglobin mass of their athletes. So that's the support. But on the other side, we have to look at 
what are the criticisms and challenges for live high, train low altitude training? The challenge currently is being spearheaded by a guy called Carsten Lundby. And one of his studies challenges the idea of live high, train low altitude training directly. It's called Effect of Norumbaric Hypoxic Training on Exercise Performance. And this double-blinded, placebo-controlled experiment failed to find any performance or physiological improvements in well-trained cyclists after four weeks of live high, train low. So the study itself had 16 trained cyclists that spent eight weeks at the Centre National de Ski Nordique in Primanon, France. For four of those weeks, they spent 16 hours a day confined to their altitude-controlled rooms, 10 of the subjects were kept at altitude at 3,000 meters and 6 were at an ambient 1,000 meter altitude. Neither the subjects nor the scientists taking the measurements knew which cyclists were living high and questionnaires during and after the study showed that the subjects hadn't been able to guess which group they were in. On five occasions before, during and after the four weeks, the subjects underwent a whole series of performance and physiological tests. The performance test was a time trial using the subject's own bike and a power meter covering the last 26 kilometers of the Milan-San Remo race. So what were the results? Hemoglobin mass, maximal O2 uptake in normoxia and at a simulated altitude of 2,500 meters and mean power output in a simulated 26 kilometer time trial remained unchanged in both groups throughout the study. Exercise economy, this is O2 uptake measured at 200 watts, did not change during the live high train low intervention and was never significantly different between groups. Also, there was a red blood cell increase, but there wasn't an increase in VO2 max, concluding that the red cell mass was too small to increase the VO2 max. The biggest finding of the study, or lackluster result, was that after four weeks, there was no difference in VO2 max between the control group and the test group, and no changes in one and two weeks after terminating the altitude camp. Also, no changes in sprint capacity, and the Wingate test did not increase more than the initial bump, which was most likely to learning how to game the test. So, in conclusion... Four weeks of live high, train low using 16 hours per day of normal baric hypoxia did not improve endurance performance or any of the associated physiological variables. Also, this quote summing up the findings, in summary, our study provides no indication for live high, train low using normal baric hypoxia to improve time trial performance or VO2 max of highly trained endurance cyclists more than conventional training. Given the considerable financial and logistic effort of performing a live high, train low camp, this should be taken into consideration before recommending live high, train low to elite endurance athletes. Bam. It is a very solid study, a double-blind study with a control group, a placebo control group, and he still has no findings from this. He also does another interesting study, which was a meta-analysis of 66 papers to look at red cell mass. And part of that meta-analysis was to look at the time you need to stay in order to increase red cell mass. 
His final conclusion is to not recommend live high train load to endurance elite endurance athletes. His final conclusion was the same as the first study where he does not recommend live high train load to elite endurance athletes. Live high train load does not convincingly increase performance in all elite athletes. There is no predictable response for a given individual stating that there is no way to predict who will gain from live high train low and live high train low may limit other important factors in performance. For example, sleeping quality is decreased. So Lundby's opinion is that the most likely reason the subjects failed to see increases in total hemoglobin mass is that they already had very high levels since they were elite athletes. So the suggestion that the technique works well on normal people who usually volunteer for lab tests but may be less effective on elite athletes who have already optimized their endurance boosting parameters through hard training. My conclusion from this is that you're effectively wasting your time if you're not checking the effect on your red blood cell mass to see your response to altitude training and you've got to be truthful with yourself. If it's not working, it's a waste of time and money. Another method of altitude training is the live low, train high method, including intermittent hypoxic exposure during training sessions. However, given the relatively short duration of hypoxic exposure, muscular adaptions, and not necessarily an improved oxygen carrying capacity are thought to enhance exercise performance after live low, train high. And this is where you don't go to altitude. Instead, you do a few workouts per week while breathing air with a lower than normal concentration of oxygen. And this idea has been around for decades, but the evidence that it works is still lacking. How do you do this with a hypoxic machine, something that actually changes the composition of the air that you're breathing in as well as the oxygen level? These start at around $3,000, so they're a really steep investment. This type of training is also called interval hypoxic training, and Ben Levine, a well-respected altitude researcher, isn't a fan of training at altitude, whether it's stimulated or not. He says that rather than intensifying the training stimulus, training at altitude or under hypoxia leads to the opposite effect, reduced speeds, reduced power output, reduced oxygen flux, and therefore is not likely to provide any advantage for a well-trained athlete. And that's not to say there is some evidence to support this type of training. There was a study that was released in February 2013 showing an improvement in the number of 10-second sprint efforts after four weeks of two sessions per week, a hypoxic group and a normoxic group. The sprints to exhaustion increased for the hypoxic group going from 9 to 13 versus staying exactly the same for the normoxic group. The training they did was a 10-minute warm-up with one set is 5 by 10 seconds and they did three sets with five minutes between sets and a 10-minute warm-down. But there are other more endurance-specific studies that fail to show any change in performance at all. One is called Effects of Hypoxic Interval Training on Cycling Performance, and they took 33 well-trained cyclists and triathletes and divided them into three groups, intermittent hypoxic, intermittent hypoxic interval training and normoxia, and they completed a seven-week training program consisting of two high-intensity, 100 or 90% relative peak power output, so that's super high-intensity interval training sessions each week, 
Each interval training session was performed in a lab on the subject's own bike in normoxic or hypoxic conditions, and the results, the mean power output during a 10-minute cycle time trial improved after the first four weeks of training without significant differences between the groups. Also, there was no significant difference in the following three weeks in any group, VO2 max, and no changes in cycling efficiency or hematological variables were observed. So, again, it's showing that it actually doesn't do anything. Four weeks of interval training induced an improvement in endurance performance for everybody, and there was not a benefit for training in hypoxia over training in normoxia. So, what can you say here? There is little clear guidance or support from the empirical evidence for train high, live low. But let's wrap this up with my conclusions and further thoughts on altitude training as a whole. If you are still interested and you want to give it a go, here are some recommendations for things that can help you get the most out of it. Here's some advice if you're going to try it for yourself. There are certain factors to look into if you're wanting to try and get a benefit. And there are more factors that are known about when not to do altitude training. And these are if you've been training hard and putting in a lot of time and you may be flat, then don't do it. If you have an injury, don't do it. If you're sick, don't do it. And if you're low on iron, don't do it. Don't do it in any building phases. Only do it leading up to a taper period or into a big event. These factors can reduce adaptability, but to predict anything beyond this and if you will get a benefit is still unknown. And I thought we could wrap this up with two questions, not from myself though. So the critical question to me seems that it's performance that's the ultimate marker of whether this works or not. And if it takes greater than 10 hours a day at extreme expense to try and get a 1% increment in performance, my question is, would that resource be better spent on other methods of performance enhancement? Nations put a lot of onus on their Olympic and World Championship performances and spend ridiculous amounts of money uh, chasing those medals. Um, uh, well, reflecting back to Olaf Schumacher's comment, I think many, many athletes do use altitude, looking for those last fractions of a percent. Um, you know, I, I've felt as a scientist since working with Charlie Walsh right back in, you know, in the early days that I've been trying to measure all the empirical stuff, the anecdotal stuff, and have really scratched the surface to, to try and actually come up with an answer of does it, does it work, that I can put my hand on my heart as a scientist and prove beyond all doubt. Just a further question. I understand that at this stage you can't um, predict who will respond and who will not, and it seems to me like this is the biggest issue at the moment. It's, it's unpredictable in individual athletes. So do you have any sensation of whether this is reproducible in single athletes? In other words, if you can test somebody in advance to see whether they would respond, can you then use the same athlete to, or can you advise them to go to altitude? The reason I'm asking is with uh, altitude sickness, for example, that's not always predictable. Even in people who've been to altitude before, they can develop it without any reason. Yeah, yeah, we've... we've um done stuff that's published and unpublished trying to predict um, individual responsiveness and yeah. 
I, I think you can get reasonably reproducible, but it's it's still very with individuals that you know that responded before and you've demonstrated it and measured their performance in a race. But even then, it's if you give somebody the same training block, you know, an eight-week training block or whatever this year, and then you reproduce it exactly next year, other things happen in their lives. They're carrying a bit more of an injury. They broke up with their girlfriend. Their, their mother's ill. The dog died. Like, it, it, it's I'm, I'm taking it to the extreme, but. It's very hard for an athlete to reproduce the identical training block one year to the next year. And to think that altitude, which has a whole lot of other factors going on, can produce an identical response to an athlete is an oversimplification. That's the AIS's Dr. Chris Gore, and he's been around altitude training since the early 90s, and it sounds pretty conclusive to me. When he can't admit that it works and the lack of reproducibility because without the empirical evidence on the individual level, you would be hard-pressed to create a protocol for yourself. And if the scientists are unable to say that without a doubt that it works, then I find it hard for a coach or even a company selling these products to be able to make claims that any form of hypoxia training or acclimatization works on the individual level for you. So I'm leaving it with you to make your own mind up. Now, the tech hacks and products section, and the product this week is Patch and Ride, patchandride.com, an unreleased product that will apparently fix your flat without you having to take the tire off the rim and change the tube or add a tube if you're running tubeless. They're pretty confident that it'll be good for almost all punches, but think about it. If it doesn't fix all punches, you still need to carry some patches and a spare tube, etc. And what if the inner tube is flat on the inside? The whole idea becomes totally useless as the liquid and patch will just spurt out. Plus, the chance of a hole in the tire being in alignment with the hole in the inner tube is very unlikely. I know I sound a little cynical here, but on top of that, if you add that the patch pods that go into this device are going to retail between $10 and $12 to fix one puncher. That's a pretty hefty price to pay for a single puncher. So while in theory it's a good idea, I'm not sure it's worth it, even if you can fix any puncture. And now that quote from the top of the show, it's Anamirs, the Australian track queen. Well, has she been dethroned? She was beaten this week in the sprint at the Commonwealth Games. And is this a changing of the guard for Australian sprinting? I'm pretty excited that Stephanie Morton, the rider that got over Anamirs, is only 23. So They are both looking good for Rio. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash altitude to find any links used in this week's episode. Until next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 